Hello and welcome to episode 581 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'd like to welcome you to the show proper with this song from the band The Void Surfers. They had an album come out earlier this year called Satanic Cowboy Surf Rock Mayhem. This song is called Wipeout Law Country. They gave us permission to play their music here on the show. Please go check them out over at thevoidsurfers.bandcamp.com. When you're done listening to this episode all about Conan the Barbarian. I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time, folks. A really long time. I'm so glad that I'm finally able to get this together and make this happen. We recorded this episode once many, many months ago, and I have since lost the recording. So fortunately, this week's guest was willing to reconnect and re-record and rediscuss discuss Conan the Barbarian. I'm talking about this week's guest, Steve Turek from the Diecast Movie Podcast. Steve recently went to Monster Bash, so we talked briefly about that. But we're going to get into some Conan the Barbarian discussion. And of course, I think it goes without saying that we're talking about the original Conan the Barbarian film, not the more recent one with Jason Momoa. Nothing against Jason Momoa. I'm sure he's a lovely man and he smells great, but it's not Conan. It's not my Conan. We're going to talk about Conan. Conan the Barbarian with Steve Turek. Now, I am really lucky because I live in an area that has a lot of really awesome movie theaters, up to and including the Hollywood Theater, which is basically home base for the Lovecraft Film Festival. They are a big believer in bringing in film, film prints, 35mm prints of movies when possible. And they recently showed Conan the Barbarian in 35mm, and it was amazing by crumb. It was amazing. And I didn't just go by myself. Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland, who actually was the one who alerted me to the screening happening, joined me, but I was also joined by my girlfriend, Beth. And you've heard me talk about Beth a lot on the show recently, as well as on the streams. I can't seem to stop talking about her because I love her and she's amazing. And this is her first appearance on Monster Kid Radio. So you get to hear Chris and Beth and I talk about Conan, before the movie, and then after you hear that, you're going to hear the conversation that I had with Steve about the movie as well. Plus, Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. I suspected this, and a number of you actually reached out to me to tell me this, and, well, Kenny delivered. Conan the Barbarian did appear in the original Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, so Kenny's got a segment for that as well. And then completely non-Conan related, we've got Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review, where he's going to talk a little bit more about Ultra 7. Seven, seven, seven. I know I always say I'm never going to do that again every time, but I do it every time because it's just fun. Ultra 7 is fun. The Beta Capsule Review is awesome. Mark's great. Kenny's great. Steve, Beth, Chris. So many people contributed to making this an awesome episode. I can't wait to share it with you. So let's go ahead and do that right now. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. 
Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. A wave of excitement ripples through TDF headquarters with the imminent testing of Superweapon R1 at the beginning of the 26th episode of Ultra 7. Terrestrial Defense Force scientists Segawa and Maeno are eager to observe the results of their work, which they estimate will unleash the destructive power of 8,000 hydrogen bombs. The news is greeted with enthusiasm by everyone but Dan, who holds to a solemn silence. He means to persuade the committee to call off the test, but Furuhashi prevents him from doing so. In the lead-up to the launch of the R-1, Staff Officer Takenika mentions to Captain Kiriyama that Superweapon R2 is already under development, which boasts twice the explosive power of the R1. Astonished by the news, Kiriyama and the Ultra Guard congregate to witness the testing of the R1, which is fired at a planet named Giron as a show of force to the galaxy. Giron, presumed to have been uninhabited, is decimated in spectacular fashion by the R1, the celebration is interrupted by a report that something is flying directly toward Earth from the spot where Giron used to be. It's a giant monster, apparently bent on avenging the eradication of its homeworld and the fact that it can reassemble after being blown up, coupled with its ability to emit clouds of radioactive ash, makes it a formidable consequence of engaging in a mega-weapons race. Superweapon R1 offers a cogent, direct critique of nuclear deterrence and Cold War doctrines. As usual, Dan slash Ultra 7 serves as the conscience of the TDF with a wider perspective than his human counterparts, and yet Ultra 7 can apply force with brutal efficiency when needed, as he does with the tragic alien kaiju Star Bem Giron. And Star Bem Giron really is a tragic figure. He is what Superweapon R1 made him, making Giron the closest thing to Godzilla yet seen in the Subaraya Ultraverse. It's no wonder Ultra 7 has such a hard time dispatching the monster, sustaining a hand injury that carries through to Dan's human form. Interestingly, this episode was temporarily removed from televised rotation in Japan following the Fukushima Daiichi disaster in 2011 due to the fact that it shows a giant wave destroying a seaside power plant. Star Bem Giron would reappear in the 20th episode of 2017's Ultraman G as a capsule monster used by Jeed's nemesis, Kai Fukuide. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Mansky reporting.
vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's film, Conan the Barbarian, was featured twice in FM. The first time was in issue 179 from November of 1981. It was a two-page article with two large photos and this brief text. Irresistible indestructible, incredible, Conan, king, barbarian, swashbuckler. He was a barbarian in the time of the Hyborian Age, in a period which lay between the glory of Atlantis and the recorded history of the modern world. As a youthful adventurer, he began his heroic ascent to a position of gigantic stature in the legendary lands of the ancient eastern hemisphere of Earth. Robert E. Howard, the creator of the character Conan, who flourished in the halcyon thirties of legendary fantasy magazine Weird Tales, lived and died without probably ever dreaming in his vivid imagination that one day his warrior of antiquity would become a modern movie hero. But there's every indication that muscles are in, and this Christmas, Conan will be muscling his way in between such already established heroes of the past, present and future as Superman, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, James Bond, Tarzan etc. Before long every schoolboy and schoolgirl will be able to spell Schwarzenegger as well as a college graduate. Knock, knock. Who's there? I scream. I scream who? I scream, Conan. Editor Ackerman was last seen running that way with a roaring barbarian in pursuit. Later in FM 185, from July of 1982, there was an eight-page article, which included a whopping 21 photos. It started with this brief history of fantasy films. Conan. Conqueror of Samaria. When the barbarian bursts upon the movie screens this spring, it's the cinematic, cinedramatic culmination of sword and sorcery films, stretching back to Fritz Lang's Mahi classic, Siegfried, and Douglas Fairbanks Sr.'s Thief of Baghdad the same year. After the advent of sound, fantasy and films waited until the 1940s for Alexander Korda's Thief of Baghdad, starring Conrad Veidt. This brilliant special effects feast, in color, spawned several Arabian fantasy films such as Arabian Nights, 1942, and Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, 1943, both starring John Hall and Maria Montez. The 1950s saw such films as The Magic Voyage of Sinbad, 1952, and The Sword and the Dragon, 1959, both Russian epics of their heroic legends, and of course Ray Harryhausen's classic The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad 1958. In 1960, Joseph E. Levine gave us Steve Reeves as Hercules from Italy, and its success resulted in over 40 sword and sandal films from Europe in only three years. In the early 60s we saw Japan's entry into the genre with Lost World of Sinbad. 
1963 Harryhausen gave us Jason and the Argonauts and Burt Gordon captured the magic sword on film, but during the rest of the 60s and into the early 70s, sword and sorcery was meager fare on the screen. In 1975 we were brought back to the land of legend in Monty Python's outrageous version of King Arthur in, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Late in the 70s things began picking up with England's Hawk the Slayer, and on to the 80s when we were treated to John Borman's fabulous version of the Arthurian legend, Excalibur, and the made-for-TV film, The Archer. Now Robert E. Howard's greatest hero burst upon the screen in this film by John Melius, writer of Apocalypse Now and writer-slash-director of Dillinger, The Wind and the Lion, and Big Wednesday. Conan was produced by Dino De La Rentis, who made Barbarella, and the remakes of King Kong and Flash Gordon with production designed by Ron Cobb, who worked on Alien. The film stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as Conan, Darth Vader voice James Earl Jones as Thulsa Doom, and Sandal Bergman as Valeria. Conan was born in the pages of Weird Tales magazine in 1932, in a story by a young Texan named Robert E. Howard. From 1932 to his untimely suicide at age 30 in 1936, Howard penned some 18 Conan stories. After his death they saw spotty publication of a series of paperback books, edited and augmented with new stories by Lynn Carter and Al Sprague de Camp. They have seen almost continuous publication through the 70s. The Conan stories cover most of the barbarian's life, but left out his youth and upbringing, it is here the film opens. It continues with a quick spoiler-filled synopsis. Here's a sample of one of the key scenes which features a monster snake. Lowering themselves into the well, the trio observes a strange ritual. Then Conan and Subotai continue down to the bottom of the shaft where they find a fabulous jewel, the Eye of the Serpent, and its guardian, a 40-foot snake. Conan steals the gem and slays the snake but not before discovering the symbol of his dread enemy Thulsa Doom. At the end of the article, a full page was dedicated to selling Conan books and graphic novels. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Trying something different. I'm using my phone to record this because I didn't feel like bringing my recorder to the theater, which is probably just as well because it is a very full house. And I don't know if I could have snuck my recorder in without, I don't know, bumping into, I don't know what I'm saying. I'm using my phone. I hope it works out okay. <laughs> Going in the Barbarian, I was just telling Chris, who's to my left, that I did not realize it's the 40th anniversary of Conan the Barbarian. Oh... Oh, man, by crumb, I'm excited. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing good. Oh, I'm doing good. How are you? I, I, how do you think I am? Excited. By crumb. <laughs> Chris, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentations of the women. The lamentations of the women, yes. Oh, man. I can't believe he got that one. I can't believe he got that line out. <laughs> I mean, no, no offense. He, it was just very early in his career. His accent was very thick. You know, just, I would be like me trying to get a line out in German, you know, or a whole movie out in German. And to be fair, he doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I just, it, you know, I, I that sounded bad. I didn't mean it that way. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, I, no, it's, it's all good. It's all good. No, you're absolutely right. I'm, apologi um, I'm apologizing to Arnold. 
And I know he's listening, so, oh, I know. you know, Arnold and I were tight. <laughs> when was the last time you saw this? Oh, man, I don't remember. Um, at least 20 years ago. Holy crap. It's been a while. Oh, dude, I, I, I watched this at one point last year to talk about on Monster Kid Radio with Steve Turek. I have since lost that recording. Steve and I are going to get together and record again. And I mean, to see it on the big screen, I've never seen it on the big screen. Oh, I haven't either. Yeah. I have not either. So yeah, this, this is going to be a thing, man. This, this should be awesome. And as I always say, it's in glorious 35 millimeter. Heck yeah, man. Oh, mm-hmm. I was talking with Beth who is with us tonight, but she is, uh, seeing a man about a sword. Uh, she is uh, or seeing a woman about a sword. Um, a sword? She's in the bathroom. Ow. Uh, you know, something, seeing no, a man about a horse, you know, just kind of, you know. Just, I was going to say, man, I want to be in on that conversation. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, she is super excited about this, too, like more so than I, uh. I expected, which makes me really happy and lets me know that I picked a good one. Um, like the Girlfriend and movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. This this should be a treat, but I, she uh, also understands the difference between film versus digital, and I'm not going to not going to put words in her mouth, but to paraphrase, uh, she's compared like film versus digital to like painting with light versus color, and the way she describes it makes it make a lot of sense. Oh yeah, I, I, I won't. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, and she's right. For me. There's a texture, uh, and there's something about, like when we watch the movie, watch the credits, they aren't going to stand still on the screen as much as they want them to. Film runs through a projector, a mechanical device, there's loops involved, there's gears, there's vibrations, so you can't have a perfectly still image with film. And to me, that's just part of the experience, and I love it. Oh yeah, no, I agree. I, I I love how film can actually look yeah more real than digital. I mean, digital looks really good, but it's too good. It's got this falseness to it, it that that film just can't match. So much so, on the stream, sometimes when I want my little ads that I put up there or whatever to look less like just a computer screen and more like film, I will go in there and manually add a little bit of jitter. I will manually add a couple of frames where it goes out of focus for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and every once in a while, you can kind of zoom in and zoom out for like a frame, just to kind of give it that inconsistency that film gives you. And it's just, again, maybe it's because I grew up watching film versus digital, but it's all part of the experience. Yeah, no, I mean, I grew up watching, you know, films and drive-ins and theaters and stuff, and then digital came out, and I mean, digital's given us CGI, for better or worse. You know, you go see the Avengers, it's it's impressive, but it just, it doesn't, doesn't feel real. It just feels like, like a cartoon. Bits and bites. Yeah, you know, it, all, it, it just, it doesn't have... The texture, the shadow, the the the, the feel of you know, it, it's it's a, it's a very hard thing to get across, but it doesn't look 
like a movie. It looks like a cartoon. It looks like it just someone drew it. <laughs> so um, I'm sitting next to my girlfriend. You want to say hi to the podcast? Hi, everyone. Her name's Beth, and she's awesome. And I'm in love with her, but, you know, I say that all the time on the stream and, and such. She was so excited about seeing Conan. I was just telling Chris, when you got so excited about Conan, I knew I picked a good one, both a movie and a girlfriend. Oh well, that's awful sweet. I really enjoy, you know, getting to see all these movies that are your favorites. Because I think, especially with old movies, yeah, somebody tells me three or four old movies that they really love, that tells me a ton about them as a person and their values and their morals and their personality oh, no. and, and it's not even necessarily that you know if, if they're all funny movies that they're this big comedian because some movies have a wide range of emotions and so you really got to look at the whole movie and, and maybe even you know ask like what your favorite character is because that can be a game changer you know if your favorite character in avengers is thor that's one thing if it's loki that's a whole different person <laughs> and i think the same is true about you know whether you're rooting for the people trudging up the Amazon or for the creature coming out of the lagoon, you know? It's a different person depending on who, who you're rooting for there. So, yeah, I love the old movies. All right. She likes to watch the old movie, and I get that. You know, movies speak a lot about who we are. Conan the Barbarian is one of my favorite movies, and she's going to judge me based on the morals and values of Conan. Oh, you're in trouble. I might be in trouble here. <laughs> You've seen this before, though, right? Oh, uh, yes, I have, but never on a big screen like this. So very exciting to get to see it that way. I feel like that's probably how it was intended to be seen. Oh, yeah. Certain movies, you just need to see on the big screen. They're just not the same on a 12-inch iPad. <laughs> right. Well, and, and maybe it goes back to just feeling like film's better than digital and CGI versus physical and... Like, the sets in this, there's the temple stuff. I don't know if you remember any of it. And you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You've seen it. That, that was a real structure. That was real. And to be able to see that projected huge on the screen, as opposed to a bunch of bits and bytes. And, and that's an art form and good for them. But, man, this is what I'm looking for. It's all moving for this. Yeah, Bill, I agree. Um, it's going to be interesting to see it on the big screen. Um, I'm curious how many matte paintings they actually had to do for some of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, it's going to be fun watching the battle sequences because, yeah, they are bloody and it's yeah. not CGI blood, which does never, they still can't make that look good. Yeah, I mean, there's a spectacle involved that I can't wait to see. Um, I feel like I was going to ask you a question, Beth, but I, I'm drawing a blank because I'm just so excited and buzzing about this, <laughs> this whole thing. Um, well, I really like what you're saying about with like the sets and stuff, that, you know, because back in the day you couldn't just CGI everything, right. or, or hopefully you didn't because it was so monstrously bad back then. It really wasn't going to make the movie better, but they did. They put all these hours and all this time into these sets, which... Me being a haunted house designer, I can really appreciate because we spend so many hours on something that people are literally going to see for 10 seconds as right. they walk through the room. But but it is an art, and I feel like film showcases that art in a way that, that digital just 
hand. I know we've talked before about film being more like painting with light instead of painting with pixels. And, and for me, that really, you know, strikes home because, well, I, I see myself as a very creative person. I am not talented in the realm of drawing and painting in that way. And, well, yes, I could take, you know, bingo markers and a giant wall and <laughs> pop out Van Gogh's Starry Night. And, and from standing back, it would look like Starry Night if you were standing a mile away down the street. But we all know that that's not the same as a professional artist with brushes or even <laughs> spray paint coming in and properly doing it and, and really painting. Yeah. The same way with film, you're painting with light instead of just putting a bunch of pixels together. This, those sets and, and that scenery and frankly that real blood from the fight scenes deserves that. Like that's that's the dignified way to present. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm gonna put the phone back in my pocket. Because I'm, I'm ready, man. I, I don't know how much more time we have, but it's five minutes after nine. So I, it's going to start any minute now. Final words, Chris? Oh, I can't wait to see this on the big screen. This is going to be amazing. Just amazing. Oh, oh I think it's about go. to start. Here we go. You ready? Oh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> Slave. Barbarian. Warrior. Thief. Conan. They said you'd come. A man of great strength. Conqueror. One who could crush the snakes of the earth. of their own deaths. He's evil, a sorcerer who can summon demons. Day of Doom is here! What daring! What arrogance! I salute you. Incredible adventurer of all. The man they call Conan. The Barbarian. Coming to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. But for me, it was, um, 
I, I, I think I messaged to you. It was like one of the, I mean, it was like the best badge ever. And I think because each one gets better and better in certain ways. And you're not always like I'm, I've been at bashes where you're not always there because I go to this fall one and, and you don't come and, and you don't make up all the summer ones. And same thing with Rich Chamberlain and Jeff Owens, you know, because it's just like, you know, I've been at bashes where a lot of guys I get to see are there. And I get, I've been at bashes where I'm meeting a whole new people. And um, this is this one was a nice blend of the two. So it's a, uh, and you know, and each bash is always going to be different, and that, and I always think that the next one should be the best one because you always want to keep thinking your improvement in your experience and how you and how you how you experience the event is different. Right on, man. And actually, I was hitting record just to kind of make sure my levels were good. Just as you were saying that, somebody used that to open the show, or at least our recording. Well, there, there we, we go. go. It's Steve Turk from the Diecast Movie Podcast telling me all about a monster bash that I wasn't at making me feel terrible for missing what was an amazing experience. I'm sure. And no, not really. I just love that my friends had a chance to go see it and, and enjoy it and have a good time. Um, and I get to live vicariously through reports like Steve's like Kenny's from a few weeks ago on the show and all the different posts and pictures I've seen all over the internet. Um, I'm glad you, uh, had a good time, man. And you got, you came home I had a wonderful- safe and sound and, and, had a wonderful time. I mean, you've had Kenny's, you've had the uh, the, the two Q and A's that you've been putting up. Liberty Warsburg being the most recent one, right? Yeah, which and, works um, as a great double feature with your interview with her. By the way, for the record, you interviewed Beverly Washburn on your podcast a while back, and it's it's a great interview. So check it out, folks, if you haven't already. And Beverly is just, is just such a a wonderful person. She mentions in her Q and A every bit of money she makes from the convention she goes to goes to animal charities at that lo- at that vicinity. They don't go back. She doesn't take them back to Vegas with her. She finds the charities at the locations that she's at during the convention, and she donates it to them. I think that's great. I- I've had recordings of the Q&As that she's done over the years, and I've interviewed her myself many years ago during one of my first Monster Bash experiences. One of my, and I think I've told this story before, one of my favorite Bash memories has to do with her uh, sitting uh, at breakfast. I'm sitting there by myself eating breakfast, and she was sitting there with, uh, who's no longer with us, the uh, the boy from uh, 13 Ghosts, Charles Herbert. She was sitting there with Charles Herbert having breakfast at a table near mine, and I was just kind of eating there and trying not to get too starstruck, you know, looking around and all that. And she just looks over and it's like, you look really familiar. And she had no reason to know who I was and, and probably didn't recognize me from what she thought she recognized me from, but it turned into uh, a, a nice little conversation over breakfast. And that, that's going to be a memory from Monster Bash that I hold on to forever. It was just so sweet. Yeah, for me, when people look at me and they, 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 they think I'm familiar, I know they've been at the post office recently. So my uh, is that how it is? Is that how it is? <laughs> for me. I mean, for me. I mean, you're different. Yeah, yeah. You, you're not wanted in that way. You're wanted in a good way because you are a podcasting oh, legend. God. <laughs> I mean, Rondo award-winning, Hall of Famer. I mean, come on. I mean, you got it all except the plaque. Yeah, I've got it all except the <laughs> plaque. Exactly. Exactly. It still doesn't feel real, even though it's been over what a year, two years now. This I don't know how long it's been at this point, but it doesn't. It won't feel real till the plaque actually is on my. I have a spot for it. When I moved into this apartment here in Vancouver. I have a place for it, right next to like the forey and everything else. It just 
Doesn't feel real yet. And listeners, don't believe him when he says he has no idea how long it's been. He actually told me prior to this how many, how the year, the month, the days, and Dude, the hours. Dude, David might be listening to this. Stop. <laughs> David Colton might be listening to this. Dude. <laughs> David, give me give me his plaque and I'll hold it hostage. Oh, man. Anyway. <laughs> uh, how have you been, man? I've been doing well. I've been doing well. I, I told you prior to us recording that we had a power outage from a storm. And so we went from, uh, we're recording this on a Sunday, so we went from a Tuesday to Saturday where we had no power. And I live in the country, the rural areas, where we have well water. And when you have no power, that means you have no um, water, uh, which means it, it was getting rather ripe in the old turret camp. Now, was it just your your home or was it like widespread? Like, could you have gone down to like the Y or something to shower or whatever? <laughs> Look, you said go down I don't to the know. Y. What part of rural did... <laughs> No, I, I know I, you don't live in work, like you so know. I, I went. I went to the. Um, it, it was. It was in our area, like the the the, the, hit, the county we were in. It was mostly that. It was like a hundred thousand people. I think at one time that had no power, and uh, because of our location, you know, it got down to about six thousand. That's about when our power came back on because we there was trees knocked over, power lines were down. It was it was a mess driving. Uh. And, um, but my work has showers, so when I go when I went, go to work, I was able to to shower there. It doesn't mean the rest of the house was being, had access to the same hygiene. I don't know, just, just wondering, you know. <laughs> I got well, nothing uh, else. Yeah, I got nothing else. It is. What, I mean, you, you learn. It, it's happened before. When you live in a rural area, you know, and, and a hurricane or a storm goes through. This wasn't a hurricane. It was just a, a random, well-placed storm with 70-mile-an-hour wind that make you think it was a hurricane. Very short. didn't last for long, but it did damage. It lasted for a lot longer than that. But thankfully, nobody got hurt. And that's the main thing, you know, because you can always fix things back up and rebuild stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, it had stories that you can always remember down the road. It wasn't a normal week. You know, it's one of those memorable weeks. Well, I'm glad you survived. And speaking of memorable, I got to listen to the Rally Awards announcement, and something I was rooting for happened. Oh. The Octopus won in one of the categories. I was like, come on, come on. <laughs> It had to win in Best Monster. You're just, you're biased because we covered that movie here on the show. Not that oh, I'm complaining. Yeah, uh, Not that when, I'm complaining. <laughs> when, you, when you watch the Oscars or the Emmys, aren't you more biased to shows or movies you've actually seen? Well, that's true. That's true. Same thing. I was biased to that one. Yes, I was. But I mean, that was a great transformation. And It, it really you is. Brought up, for those that want to know more about it, go back into the archive and listen to us talk about the octopus. That was a sight unseen movie. Unlike this one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, right? Yeah, when did we do that? I don't have an episode guide yet. Uh, let's see. Have to go- Okay, episode 464, March of 2020. It's been over a year, and I still remember that transformation. It's phenomenal. If you haven't seen it, man, you are, you're missing out. It's pretty, pretty darn cool. I always think about this. When you guys kept saying, the octopus. If I ever had to do another podcast again about the general topic, like hush hush topic, can you imagine the podcast? Um, I'm gonna let you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you get people to come on and talk about all the like the UFO conspiracies and all this other stuff. You know, Bigfoot. You know, be like the podcast. I think we'd have some late. But how have you been? How have you been? Have you been doing okay? I've I've been pretty open about this on my various platforms, whether it's the stream or the podcast or just online on Facebook and all that. I've been dealing with some medical stuff, but uh, 
the uh, and I think I I can't remember if I said this or not. The uh, biopsy came back. The the blip or whatever you want to call it on my arm was not cancerous. So that's a bonus. Very happy about that. <laughs> Good news. So yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, so yeah, you know things have just been going really really well. Uh, this episode will and you've already heard it at this point because of where I'm placing it in this episode. This episode features the very first appearance of my girlfriend, Beth, on the podcast. Uh, and that relationship, as far as I'm concerned, is going amazingly well. Uh, I, I hope she agrees. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, things are going pretty well. Things are going pretty well. And that's a more important question. How's Wednesday doing? Because really, I just I said the first question that gets set up the Wednesday question. I see. I see. <laughs> I see. Well, Wednesday. Let's see. How are you, hon? He's looking out the window, ignoring me. Yeah? How you doing? You want to say hi? No, you don't care. She's good. <laughs> she has a vet appointment coming up here shortly, so, uh, but I'm not anticipating any surprises or anything. So. And listeners, if you're not following Wednesday on Instagram, you're missing now. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, not too long ago, she had her uh, Ouija board <laughs> photo shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Wednesday potato. Just look her up on Instagram. Anyway, we're not here to talk about a weird mole or my cat or whether or not Steve has enough power to shower. We're here to talk about something else. Something amazing. Something that you and I now have in common. So it took you decades later than me to do it. I saw Conan the, the Barbarian twice in the movie theaters when it's initial release. Ugh. And you finally, 40 years after it came out, caught up to me. You know, it's not because I didn't want to. I just have never had the opportunity to do so. I've not had anyone around me showing the film. And when I discovered that it was showing... Uh, in the Portland, Oregon area, courtesy of Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland, who you heard earlier in this episode. I knew I was there. I had to go. I I had to go. Uh, that it was a 35mm print bonus. And, okay, I want to I talk about the experience of seeing Conan. Now, I didn't talk about this in the recording because I didn't record after the film with Chris and Beth. Uh, during the film, it was amazing. It was a near sold out house. It was a very cool blend of people that were there. Metalheads, you could tell by the t-shirts they were wearing. Old school D&D gamers, you could tell by the t-shirts they were wearing. Sweet little old lady sitting behind me. I, I swear, I don't know how old she was, but she had to be somebody's grandma. And she was just there having a good time. Uh, it was just such a cool vibe. And there were moments in the film in which the crowd erupted like they were at a live sporting event. Up to, and including, Robert E. Howard's name appearing on screen. That just thrilled me so much. Uh, the movie's going, you know, the, the battle scenes, people are cheering like they didn't know what was going to happen anyway, you know, whatever. But it was just, it was a great time. The end credits hit. And as soon as the end credits hit, it's the, the symbol, right? The red circle with the snakes coming together and then the titles are playing over that the end credits are playing over that this uh, almost dead center middle of the theater up ahead of us skinny white girl stands up 
She's wearing like a like an A-shirt, wife beater kind of thing. Throws her arms up in the air and just starts cheering. Woo! It was amazing because that was the vibe the entire time. Um, it was just such a good time seeing this movie in a crowd at a good theater that really cares about presentation. 35 millimeter. It just felt awesome. And it was a transformative experience. And I'll talk about that here in a little bit. But I will say that seeing the movie this way, I saw and noticed things that I had never really noticed before. I've seen this movie so many times on VHS, on DVD, and on Blu-ray. And I'm sure I've seen it streaming or on TV or whatever as well. I've seen this movie a lot. But when you see something on the big screen, at least for me, even if I am so familiar with the film that I can recite the dialogue, eyes closed, verbatim, I'm still going to catch something that I didn't notice before. And I don't know if it's because it's the size of the, of the image, the scope of everything, but everything from little moments like young Conan, what he's doing out in the woods when the raiders come to his town. I didn't know he was ice fishing. Did, 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 I didn't know. I didn't know that's what he was doing. He had a little oh, fishing really? line. I had no idea. I just thought he was out there in the woods doing who knows what, doing what little kids do. I had no idea that he was ice fishing. And I don't know if I noticed this before or not, but I really paid attention to it this time for whatever reason. Conan basically dies in this movie after he's been crucified on the tree of woe and Subutai brings him back and Valeria and, you know, whatever they, they set him up. So they're going to, they're going to keep the gods from claiming him as they're wrapping him up and they're putting all the little runes on his body, which is very Japanese horror movie stuff, which is great. You see the wounds in his hands, basically the stigmata, right? You see where he's been, nailed to the tree, like literally nailed to the tree, which again is a moment that I don't think I really absorbed as much as I could have the first time I saw the film. Because the first time I saw the film and, and subsequent viewings, crucify him. Well, we know as, you know, uh, it's part of the Western world where Christianity is like the dominant religion for us, right? We, we know what crucify means in terms of you know, the biblical stories and that sort of thing. I don't know if I never, if I really understood that, yeah, they, they did nail him to that tree. I thought he was just tied there for whatever reason. I don't know why. Yeah, they nailed him to the tree. You see the wounds in the hands as they're painting the symbol in the hands. And then when he, the whole thing is done and he's back and they're cleaning him up, they're wiping the runes away and there are no wounds in his hands anymore. And I thought that's just a nice little touch that I don't think I fully absorbed before. So, yeah, there are a lot of things about this movie that when I saw this way, I had never noticed before. And it just made the movie that much more special for me. I wish I had seen it previously, but this way. But As I said this with um, my, um, Joshua Cannon and I were talking about Napoleon on my podcast, you know, uh, like a year or so ago. And he, he wishes he would have saw the silent movie Napoleon years before or whatever. And I said to him, I think we're all meant to see the movie when we're meant to see the movie. And in your case, you'd seen the movie, but you never got the chance to experience it on the big screen with the music coming all around you. Oh, my God. To totally envelop you 
into that immersion of the movie. And I think you saw it when you were supposed to because you appreciated more. When I saw it that way, I was 13 years old. So it's, I'm going with a different mindset, mm-hmm. you know, and different. And you, you come out of it with different things. And it was perfect. It was, it was the perfect time for me to see it because it, it imprinted onto me um, when I read the comic books because I never read Robert E. Howard then at all. So I knew Conan from the comic books and then Conan from the movie. It was it's Arnold, you know, and it's just, it's just one of those things that with, with, um, with Mako and, and all the other ones that are on the Sandra Bergman <laughs> and, and Jerry Lopez doing their thing. It's just John Millia's classic movie. It's just, you know, when you're 13 years old and you see it not once, but twice, it is just ripped you forever. Like, you know, this, this is the sword and sandal movie. This is what it's supposed to be. This is who's supposed to be in it. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it, and the, but the music is just, when you're surrounded by it and enveloped into this music that ties so well with the action that's going on and totally does it for you. There's many times I'm driving in the car and I'll just put that soundtrack on and just be transported back 40 years ago, roughly to when I was a 13 year old boy and just, just enjoying that movie again and those scenes come to life again and it's just like ah that's when you know it's with you forever yeah the music is iconic it basil paladoris uh is is a phenomenal composer did some amazing work amazing work but this this music transcends all of that it is so good and uh, to hear it in a theatrical sound system and again, in a theater that really cares about presentation, it sounded amazing. Oh, so good. I'm lucky. Steve, it was so good. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. I'm lucky where um, there's a movie theater now, that the, two of them in our area, in the Baltimore area, that do um, revival. And they'll be on for a day, sometimes up to two or three show, two or three days. So they might have multiple show, like showings for that week. One of them I saw was Enter the Dragon. And it was my oh, first cool. time seeing Enter the Dragon on the big screen. And I took my son Ben with me. And yes, I own it. I didn't have to go see it, but I went and saw it. And then they hear the the sound hmm. of when they were doing their moves, you know, like the, the, the special effects sound, they were going with it. It was just, that was the way. It's like, oh, that was what I was missing, you know, from, from all the times I saw it before. I never saw it because I never... I would see it, but I would never hear it the way it was meant to be heard with the visual, with Bruce Lee, huge on the screen, you know, and and Jim Kelly and John Saxon. I mean, come on. But come on, man. You know, it's just one of those awesome things to experience. And so that's my analogy of how you went through with Conan the Barbarian. Here's a movie I saw only on the small screen. Yeah. Multiple, multiple, multiple times in my life and then to finally go and see it on the big screen is an experience and the same thing with Gojira when I I, I saw it always on TV or on the small screen and then they did a film festival of giant monster movies and I got to see Gojira on the big screen uh, how cool is and that then, well, and, and everybody knows I love Godzilla so I mean you know it's, it's, so I know exactly where you're talking about and that's why I really appreciate films 
some movie theaters that do these little festivals or revivals. And people, yes, I know you own it already, but if it's, if it's a movie you've never seen on the big screen, and I think it's sometimes you should go see it on the big screen to get the true cinematic experience because these movies that we're talking about were never designed or thought of at the time, especially the older ones, to be shown on TV. They were just figured out you're going to see it in the theater, and this is the way it was meant to be. And and it's just it's just something, especially if it's a 3D movie. I remember the, um, the House of Wax. I saw that in the big movie theater in the 3D, and it was just like, whoa. I mean, I've seen Creature in the theater on 3D. And that was yeah. my first time ever seeing Creature when I was a boy. Yeah. And and that was just an experience. So, yeah. Yeah, I know we're going a little off tangent, but it's just when you get a chance to see a classic movie, Go for it and then see, or a silent movie where you have a Wurlitzer, somebody playing the music the way it was going to be yeah. played when he saw it back yeah. in the 20s. It, it is a great experience to do. Sure. Uh, it's, it was it was special, man. It, it really was special. And, oh, God. Okay. Anyway, all right. All right. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about why we're talking about it here on Monster Kid Radio. Well, first of all, it's my podcast. I make the decisions about what we talk about here on the show. And I know that sounds kind of flippant and whatever, but the bottom line is Robert E. Howard, uh, the creator of Conan the Barbarian, and hundreds of other characters and thousands of other stories, is my favorite writer. Uh, there is something about his text, his fiction, his poetry. I've been talking about his poetry a lot lately with Beth. I'm in love with Robert E. Howard's poetry. My goodness, it's so good. By Crom. Um, uh, there, there's just something about Conan and, and the Solomon Kane and Cull and Bran McMorn and Dark Agnes and all the other characters and just even the non-fantasy stuff that he did. This, his fiction means so much to me. And lately in particular, and this is a little different because listeners, Steve and I actually did this conversation at some point, I think it was last year, and that recording has been lost. I don't know what happened to it in the move. I had computer issues and it's gone. So I can't recreate what that conversation was about. And my life has changed since then. But those of you who follow me on Facebook and various social media platforms know that I've been selling a lot of things lately because I'm starting to slim down a lot of the stuff that I have here, including a lot of the Lovecraft stuff that I have. I, I love Lovecraft and that kind of pulp fiction era of stuff, weird tales, you know, whatever. Howard was part of that Lovecraft circle. I'm getting rid of my Lovecraft. I'm getting rid of a lot of my stuff, but I will never get rid of my Howard stuff because it just means so much to me. And yeah, there's monsters in it. Okay. There's a giant snake. Boom. There we go. There's a monster in it. <laughs> so I can justify talking about it on monster kid radio. Uh, but, but it really does have a huge, huge place in my heart. Um, courtesy of the man who taught me how to play Dungeons and Dragons back when I was in high school uh, and just, obsessing over Howard over the years ever since and getting involved in various parts of Howard fandom. I've never been to Barbarian Days uh, down in Cross Plains, Texas, which is a, a smaller, more blue-collar version of the Lovecraft Film Festival uh, up here in the Portland area. Uh, I'd love to get down there someday, um, you know, when I feel safe enough to travel and everything. But, yeah, just... I, I, I love what Howard brings to the table when it comes to how he makes me feel about a writer, about a creator, 
about a consumer of this kind of stuff. And Conan visually puts it all on the screen for the most part. I have some gripes, but if I remember correctly, though, Steve, you kind of were pushing to do the Conan stuff, too, because you wanted to do Conan the Destroyer, which we do have a recording of somewhere on your end, I assume, that'll appear on your podcast at some point. Yes, Ben, Ben's going to dust off the digital file, if that's possible. <laughs> and he's going to be he's going to be editing it now, editing it, because Ben joins us on that discussion of Conan the Destroyer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that'll be ready to go. I guess that was recorded for listeners to tell, right after we did the other one. So, so Derek was a was a much different person then, and, and Ben and Ben was still a child, but now he's grown into a full man. <laughs> it hasn't been that long. Come on, <laughs> just, just just like Conan, and the span of a movie goes from a lad to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, you know, you, you know, proportions. You know, Ben has grown. Um, you haven't seen Ben recently. He's, he's, he's you know, big, big Ben. <laughs> big Ben. Uh, well, okay, that's what I'll start calling him now. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> well, he's, he's been called that before. It doesn't bother him. So. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, but no, it's just, yeah, so yeah, this time, listeners, I'm recording in both, both our, our our vocals on my end, too. So there's, so there's a, a, if it happens again, then we know the gods are against us. Krom does not want us talking about this movie. Yes, and, and that kind of stuff. But it's just but we 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 got it. We got to back up. We got a safety precaution, so we are ready to roll. Um, either way, it 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 will be out there. E- even if I have, even if we have to put out something that's crazy, you know, we'll we'll get something out there. So Conan will not be denied. Not at all. Not at all. Who are we to deny Conan? We are just mere mortals that only live on this earth for a small fraction of time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but you, you were kind of joking, I think, about doing Conan the Destroyer, because you know that I kind of grumble about that movie. But I really do feel like the whole reason we I finally decided to pull the you know, trigger on this was you really were pushing to talk about Conan and, and Conan the Destroyer on our various podcasts. Why? Was it just well, because you thought it was funny because I kept dissing on... Uh, Destroyer? You and I were talking. I forgot the movie we were talking about. Then. Somehow, um, I brought up about, you know, Conan the Destroyer. And I, I think it started with Will Chamberlain. You did a Will Chamberlain there. Or somehow we got to that tangent. And and you were just like, Pusha, Pusha, on Conan the Destroyer. You it's know, not a it good was, movie, but I'm and, warm. And that I'm kind warm. of thing. Yeah. And, and you were just totally dismissive of it. And I was just like, what I put Conan the Destroyer? It's a it's a gem, a hidden gem that people forget about, and it, it, and we a spoiler alert. We both everybody agrees Conan the Barbarian is better than Conan the Destroyer. Oh heck yeah. it In that episode, but there's a lot of good elements with it, and I think the biggest change is this one's rated R, and that one was rated PG. So and it reminds me of a lot of. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space, the TV shows I use as a classic <laughs> example of this. Okay. Um, the first season of both of them, to me, are the best seasons of those shows because they're written for everybody, for all ages. Okay. Then they got the ratings back and said, oh, look, our market is these, these younger kids. And then they wrote to the younger kids, which then alienates the adults that are coming because now it's being written at a lesser quality than it was prior. 
Gotcha. And and of course, and after what some three seasons, they both were gone. Um, Conan the Destroyer, I think, suffered the same thing. It was done at a quality for really um, teenagers and above. But then when they redid it, they were trying to realize, oh, we're missing the younger audience. And so then they shot it for the younger, maybe teenagers, but they left out the the adult audience, you know, for the most part, uh, with what they were going for. And so I think it's because of that differential where they, where they wrote the, the movie to and aimed it at was, would hurt that movie more, where if it would have been kept at the rated R level and, and, and again, written for the same audience that Conan the Barbarian was, I think it, it would have been an awesome movie, but it was just a victim of circumstance of the edict of the producers of what they wanted. I That's will, the way I look at it. Yeah, and I agree with you there. I think you're spot on. Uh, I would also, you want to make another comparison, <laughs> the Police Academy films. Police Academy, the first film, started... It's a it's it's not for kids, man. It's rated R. There's some things happening in that movie that you do not want your kids seeing. And that franchise evolved to what? <laughs> not not that. And it, it lowered the rating and, and it became a lot more slapsticky and oh look at the guy doing the funny sound effects. Ha ha ha. That's you know, which is great. Don't get me wrong, I like what, what he does, but if you watch those films, you can definitely see them kind of immature along the way in terms of what their I, audience expectations are. I will say when you brought up police Academy for the longest time, I would never stand behind the podium um, because <laughs> of police Academy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, you know what? I'm not going to go that. We're not going to go there. Um, I, I, as far as I was going, those that know, will know those that don't, they can which, watch which the is movie. something you would never see in police Academy mission to Moscow. I'm just saying, yeah, so I wasn't going any farther than it, Derek. I know we we aim our show, but I think people that know will get laugh out of it like you did. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Conan the Destroyer, they, I think it just became victim, it fell victim to um, producers seeing dollar signs, and you know they do what they need to do to try to bring in some more money, and it may or may not have worked. But we're not here to talk about the destroyer. No, we're not. No, we're not. Because Conan the Barbarian is, to me, it's a much more personal film. Not not me personally, but it's a much more personal film for the filmmaker. Uh, John Milius is a loon uh, in, in the best way possible. He's, he's a nutcase, and I love him. Um, his interviews are just... The man's kind of unhinged, but, you know, I, I love his art. Uh He's responsible for some of the best parts of Apocalypse Now. You know, he he is an incredible creator, and he really st- put his stamp on this film um, in a way what? that I think all the other sword and sandal, sword and sorcery fantasy films have kind of not had of this era, anyway. Oh yeah, I, I agree with you on there. And of course, you think about this. This was also co-written by him and Oliver Stone. So you're talking about two guys that when you meet them in person or whatever, like when we hear them in interviews, they could go be a little out there, especially if Oliver Stone, it depended on when you're getting him in his career with um, certain substances um, that he was partaking of. Oh, and, and Milius too. Milius too. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'm saying is, so you can imagine you putting those guys together to come up with this. So I don't know where they were in their uh, when writing this. With their various partaking of certain things, so, sure. So, it's, but they also at least were working with Robert E. Howard's original concept, and whatever it is, it worked. It worked, and and then of course you pick, you know, we'll get a, we'll get a lead actor that's never really acted, that's still learning the ropes because he was in a couple of films prior to this, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and. I, I know what we'll do. We'll back him up with experienced actors, actors that people just know right off the top. Jerry Lopez <laughs> and, and Sandel Bergman, because, you know, why not? Let's get a surfer and a dancer, and we'll put them with the bodybuilder, and we're going to have Oscar award-winning material. But all three of them pull it off. How? I don't know. It could have been a cocktail what they were doing at the time but they decided to come up with that to get those three but i mean they had james earl jones you had right. max van side out you had william smith you had mako i mean you had experienced actors with them you know at various points of the movie you know set to help them out if necessary and but i, I think you know it all worked i mean sometimes you'll see films and they'll you and i both enjoy watching lower budget films or films that you know or, or those hidden gems or they're bad but they're good this one's good and good like good budget good everything everything worked and yeah. it's just one of those happy accidents I don't know but it ended up working well I mean in Arnold Schwarzenegger's career just went boom straight up after this you know it, this the, Terminator just put him over the you know over the, the top yeah yeah you know there's a moment in this movie where they are brought uh, the three that you mentioned, Schwarzenegger, okay, Subutai, Valeria, and Conan are brought before King Osric, played by Max von Sydow. And he is talking to them about um, what they did when they stole the, the Eye of the Serpent. The outrageousness, you know, all that. He could have easily been talking about this movie because there, this this movie is, is dangerous in its choices. It's It makes no sense in some ways. Let's take a surfer and a bodybuilder and have them live together for a month so they get used to each other, and then we'll shoot a movie with them. What? What? <laughs> but it works. You know, the outrageousness. And, and, and it oh, it just works on so many levels for me for that. And it, it it's a happy accident, like you said. I don't know which gods we have to thank for it, but I'm glad it exists. I look at John Milius as being the mad scientist that actually pulled his plan off. In this yeah. movie, yeah, because you you look at the ingredients. We're gonna get a little bit of these, a little bit of that, and it works like great. And you think about it when it comes to just looking at them as they perform physically. If you take out the vocal parts, just just look at the physicality they're showing. You know, for what they're trying to get across. You've got a bodybuilder, Mister Olympic, Olympian, or it was Olympus or Olympian, whatever he was. He was winning all the stuff. And, <laughs> yeah, and. You know, so if you're thinking strong and in athletic shape, you know, for, for somebody that's with, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger as an A plus, you know, if that's the if that's the physique you want to show. You have a professional dancer in Sundale playing off, you know, and able to really show off those moves. And when you're doing choreography with the fight scene, here you have a dancer and her her fight scene when she's the rear guard, um, when them leaving oh. with the princess. It's oh, great, goodness. and and she follows Obi Wan 
edict, always want the high ground. When she goes after that one guard and she goes up the thing to get the high ground, she shows you where the high ground is important. Obi-Wan was great. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you got Jerry Lopez, who's playing the archer thief type, but he has that surfer bill. And so he's got, you know, he's got that agility and everything where he just looks the part. And so the physicality of matching up. And, and, and Sandal's six feet tall, so she's like an Amazon. You know, it's not like you're trying to put this five foot two woman and trying to make her look like she's an Amazon. You have somebody that looks like an Amazon already. Yeah. Playing this warrior. Um, and, and so it, it, you, you you have that believability going into it right off the bat. You know, it's just like they, they all know what they're doing. They're all um, hurt and flawed in their in their past stories. But you, you, sometimes it's hinted at, sometimes it's shown to us directly, like with Conan. And, um, you can see why it helps them with their scenes later on with their, if they're having trouble emoting, you know, showing the emotion, it's because of their, um, uh, background shows that they were not brought or they were not nurtured in a way where that would ever be really normal, that they would have trouble showing the good thing about them. I mean, um, Jerry Lopez's character even says when Mako goes, why are you crying? You know, with the pier and he yeah. goes, goes, Conan, Salmarian, and they don't cry. So I cry for him. You know, come on. I mean, it's just it just works so well. Yeah, and I and I think I did mention this in the recording that we did before that 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 moment hits me on a couple of different levels, uh, a couple of different ways. Uh, it, it reminds me of very King Arthur like, where the man who introduced me to Robert E. Howard also introduced me to the movie Excalibur, and the movie Excalibur is also very, very cool. I love that movie a lot. Probably never going to talk about it on Monster Kid Radio because there's not any really proper monsters, I guess. But anyway, what Excalibur and King Arthur kind of... What Excalibur showed me regarding King Arthur is that King Arthur was incapable of doing all these different things. He was not a complete person without his Knights of the Round Table because he had Lancelot, who was the heart, and he had Percival, who was this facet of his personality. And he had all these other knights that were different facets of, of who he was that made him a complete person. And to me, that that is almost an echo of Conan cannot cry, but I am here, so I cry for him. So he kind of completes him in that way. And that, mm, man, so good. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it, dude. I really am. <laughs> exactly. And, and by the way, you talked about Excalibur. I'm sure we could take do something on my show, which we do all genres, and, and, and fulfill your caliber wish. Oh, don't tease me. Okay, tease what me. Tease? I'm there. What tease? It's an, it's an invitation. So it's, you know. I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> I mean, I made I made you go through Conan the Destroyer. I got to give you something as a you know pick me up. <laughs> which, to be fair, and you know, spoiler warning. I didn't dislike. I didn't hate it the way that I thought I was going to this time around. That's all I want to say. You get more. You have to listen to it. There you the go. Episode, there you go. And find out their true thoughts. Is Eric dealing? We really get into the deep details. Almost like do we? Like movie Coin and Destroyer does. It gets to the inner pathos of every man. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that's a stretch, but okay. Um. <laughs> but I mean, this movie starts off. I think in one of the best ways with the opening credits and they show the forging father <sighs> forging the sword. You see his mom, you see young Conan there going through it. And William Smith, I mean, what can be, who we tra- sadly lost not that long ago. True. 
yeah. was one of the great character actors who is in tons of TV and film work, um, not always playing the good guy, usually playing the heavy, but in this case, he's on the side of the good, but he's able to do so well and do so much and with his eyes and the way he does things. And, and you can physically believe him lasting as long as he does on the, when his village is raided um, before he gets taken out and that kind of stuff. And it's just, it's, it, William Smith is just, I mean, how can you open a movie better for this type of thing? So seamlessly with the opening credits go right into the movie. So William Smith also helps me justify talking about this on Monster Kid Radio because one of his very first roles, uncredited, was a boy uh, in the film The Ghost of Frankenstein. Also, he played Frankenstein's monster himself in an episode of Fantasy Island. So there's my monster justification right there. <laughs> but William Smith, is he's phenomenal. And I, I can't imagine anybody else playing Conan's father. Uh, of, of this time, you know, you look at a movie in the early 80s, who would you, of course you cast William Smith as going instead. It, it makes perfect sense. The whole sequence, the way it's shot, uh, the, the close-ups, seeing the sparks kind of splash out of the forge as the hammer's being brought down on the sword. Oh, so good. And this is where the crowd is going nuts in the theater. People are cheering. The music is washing over us as we're watching these incredible visuals take place on screen. It, it was transformative. Like I said, I know I keep saying that word, but it really, it was something special. Now, I know you keep saying the lack of monsters. You had a giant snake, as you already mentioned. But you have wizards and witches in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, done, you've done a whole movie where all there was was a wizard or a witch as the bad person. So it all depends on what you, how you define monster, so to speak. Um so I think I think you got plenty in the monster side to tally this to, to carry this over because I mean boom 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 I mean you got at least what two wizards a witch a giant snake you know um, flying specters uh, you got plenty of stuff here to carry it over into that that realm sure sure and listeners I know it's kind of weird because I think the two bloodiest movies that you've had oh, you know, score wise. I've, I've been, I think, on both of them with House 1977 and with this one. You know, house. So it's, yeah. House. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, what can you say? Uh, two, two crazy visionary directors doing something, that, and it comes out way, way better than you would ever anticipate it to be. So you just commented on something there. Just so listeners know, I don't typically do like a lot of R rated fare here on the show. Monster Kid Radio, you know, we have a clean rating, whatever. Uh, when it comes to podcasts and all that. This movie is rated R. It's very bloody. There's beheadings of both man and animal. There are a, a lot of, of uh, combat and, and disemboweling and throat slitting. And I didn't mean to chuckle right then when I said that. That's not... <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of nudity. There There is uh, a sequence that... Uh, uh, <laughs> lots of lots of flesh on display. Let's just say that. Um, just just say it's an orgy going on. I mean, come on. I was trying to avoid <laughs> that, but yeah, no, you're right. And it's it's actually even uh, the name of the track uh, of this uh, the name of one of the tracks on the soundtrack album. The music that plays during that sequence is literally called the orgy. 
Yeah, I mean, you might as well go all in at this point. I mean, we're not going to yeah. curse or anything like that, but I mean, it, the movie is, it, it's a disgusting movie. we got to discuss the movie. So, yeah. I mean, it, uh, it's... And, and for those, those that know early on when we brought up, you know, he caught in the ball, they don't know if it's their type of film. Yeah. Yeah. But I goodness. know there's some people that don't like this movie because they, they, they and I, I know them personally, you know, that they're, that they don't think it's true to the work. That they okay. engaged in their mind. Sure. And I understand that. But like I said, I saw the movie without ever having read Robert E. Howard. All I knew was the comic version, the comic book, and going into this. And I know there's also some people that have said that you and I have an odd obsession with this movie. <laughs> so I I will out myself here. I think this is a terrible Robert E. Howard adaptation. I, I really do. I think of all the original Conan the Barbarian stories, this one doesn't really follow any of them. There are elements from some of the original stories that make their way into this, but for the most part, this is an original story, and it's it's not a very good adaptation of Howard's original text. However, I also think this film is an incredible adaptation of the world of Conan the Barbarian. I th- when I think Hyboria, when I think the world of Conan. This is the movie I think. This is the movie that I visualize. This is the world that I imagine I can smell and feel. This is Conan's world. I'm not taking anything away from the movie by saying that I think it's not a great Robert E. Howard adaptation, because I really don't think it is. But I still love the movie a lot. Um, and I think, like I said, the world is just so what Howard envisioned and communicated through his text. And seeing the movie this time around elevated this movie in a way that had never been elevated for me before. Um, I'm going to try not to say it any more than just last time. It really was a transformative movie for me. Robert E. Howard's philosophy about barbarianism versus civilization, the individual versus the collective, um, all of these things were really on display this time around while I'm watching the movie. And and it's a little moment where you can kind of laugh and say, ha, ha, ha. But when they're walking through the city, when Conan and Subutai are going through the city, does it always smell this bad? Yeah, it's a funny ha, ha kind of moment. But that moment exemplifies a lot of what Howard felt about big cities and, and civilization, that it is a place of decadence. It is a place of decay it is not good (laughs) you know and and when you think about when he wrote where he grew up uh he lived through his town becoming like an oil boom town and had all these outside people kind of converge on this small town and turn it into something that it wasn't and he kind of communicated that through some of his writing and it's here in this movie that you know you, you get this guy who was not brought up in the cities and brought into a city able to kind of observe all the all the i don't know uh downfalls of of what civilization can lead to i think personally i don't necessarily believe that the same way he did but it's fascinating to see that through the lens of milius on the screen for me and, and see i i can understand what robert e. was talking about for the first Growing up, I lived in a small farm town in Pennsylvania. And then my 
dad moved us back to Baltimore City to take care of his mom. So I lived in Baltimore City for 15 years. So I got to know exactly what city life is now, you know, or was, you know, was dead. And now I live back in the rural area. So it's, it, it, I can see from my personal experience, you know, the differences, the, the, the positives and negatives of living in both types of environments. And, and that just, and I think, like you said, the movie pulls that out. Sometimes in funny little dialogue, sometimes just in the visual, you know, because mm-hmm. they're showing you what it's like, you know, and what, you know, what the difference is between the two. And I think, I, I, it, so it's subtle. It's there for you to see it. It's there if you don't want, but if you don't want to pay attention to it, you can still enjoy the movie. It, it, it's there in, in the background. Sure. Playing. And the other thing when you talked about, and I, I mentioned prior, like some people again say they're not a great Robert E. Howard adaption, that kind of thing. Adaptation. And I'm not going to fight or disagree or agree with it because, you know, everybody comes from a different work with their different points of view and that kind of stuff. But as you, I look at movies as what am I getting from this movie and am I enjoying myself? Am I having a really good time? And then this one hits that in all cylinders. Oh, yeah. And you could say based on, you know, it's not a literal translation or tra- you know, transformative thing. And I think some movies that we've seen based off literature, when they're too beholden to the work, lose that creative direction. You know, when somebody's too into it, it, it doesn't have that, that organic flow. And then you have people that, that go very, very loosely on something, almost too loosely, and again, it, then it's almost like it's something too different. And for me, and I think for you also, this movie hits that happy sweet spot for both of us where it, it has enough of the elements, like you, for your case, the world building. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, you know, enough of the other elements that it's a very enjoyable fantasy film. And, uh, and I think that that's the way I look at it. And, it, and this isn't something just because like, you know, people could say, Oh, the 1980s people are upset about it. This is something that still goes on today. You'll see when certain films come out that are based off literature or, film franchises or TV franchises where they're based off prior work and you get people upset because it's changed so much and that's fine. I understand their point of view. We see it now with the MCU. We see it now with even comic book movies. You see it. Yeah. And that's fine. I understand that. You know, I I can go with it. But I also remember seeing the old comic book movies that came out in the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, and, and they were, yes, they were Captain America, or they were TV shows like with Spider-Man. Uh, and, but you had some good ones like Wonder Woman, and you also had some good ones like The Incredible Hawk. Mm-hmm. But they weren't, you know, the, the budgets and the stuff that they had to use and the effects they had, you couldn't do a trend like they can do nowadays with the computers and make it more of a, uh, a, a more symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. But even then, people get, for me, too beholden on the prior stuff and it happens to me on occasions like i said i'm sure it happens to you everybody has that one thing it's like well, why did they do that type thing with certain spots but it's an ad- adaptation and they're, they're trying as long as it's enjoyable and they're trying to make the work their own i'm fine with it um i do if it is too beholden to the book that's when i think you get a little more of a thing like well why did they not do this or that i like it where it, if it's close enough to the book and it's still flowing, I think, is sometimes the best experience you can get, like Lord of the Rings trilogy that Peter Jackson did. Um, was, whereas was one that nailed it 
for me straight through. It was close to the, it was very close to the book, but also felt like its own piece where he had to make changes to fit the cinematic the cinematography and the effects that they had available at that time. Sure. I also like Ralph Bosky's um, Lord of the Rings animated sure. movie. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so I enjoy, I just enjoy people's different versions of it. So, I mean, yeah. Is this Robert E. Howard's going into Bulgarian in name only in, in the world aspect? Yes. Sure. But it's a going into Bulgarian movie that's out there and it gets people to see the movie. They probably went to the Marvel comic book. And if they went to the Marvel comic book at the time, then they would go read Robert E. Howard. Or they might just bypass the comic book and go right to the library and grab Robert E. Howard. And you're, and you're, and that's the whole point of these works. That's why I don't mind as much as I think you do where something's remade or redone because it does in some ways it's designed for that current audience. So again, the other movie came out 60 years ago, 40 years ago, whatever movie, but now you're, you're, you're shooting for that different audience and not all of them, but there's a lot of them that will go and seek out the older work, you know, especially as marketed, right. And especially nowadays with the digital age where people can go and easily find a lot more accessible, the older thing. And they can go see that and are we driven to the older works of literature and, um, and sometimes get those revivals, which you have both seen in movies where something, something that was a dead, a dead thing was suddenly revived. Everybody's wanting it now. And it's the hot thing for the next five, 10, 15 years. And it's great. Enjoy it while you can, because then it'll go dormant again. And then it'll rise up again because the work itself is very well done. And it has can have fruitful things to come from it down the road. So that's, I'm off my soapbox now. Well, I, and this is a common argument when it, when people start talking about remakes, I'm, I'm, I've softened in my thought about remakes over the years. Uh, you know, for a long time, I really felt remakes were the uh, black hole of creativity when it came to Hollywood. But when you look at the history of Hollywood, remakes have been there since the beginning and it is what it is. Right. And I, I don't necessarily 100% agree with the, it's going to send people looking for the original material argument. Um, but that's okay. I, I think having Conan in the world in this way is a good thing one way or the other. I know that it did help to drive interest toward at least the Conan comic book, which at the time was the only place you can get new Conan stuff when it first came out. Whether or not the Conan comic book was a faithful adaptation of Robert E. Howard, well, that's not something I can speak intelligently on because I've not read a lot of the early Marvel Conan comics. Um, so I can't say. But um, I think it. I think this movie is definitely valid for sure, uh, whether I think it's a good adaptation of Howard or not. Um, and when I think of Howard, when I think of the original Conan, the Barbarian stories, I think of this music. I think of the, mu the music in this film. I, I can't not think about the music in this film. Sometimes, and yes, I'm that person, when I'm reading something, I want a soundtrack. And when I'm reading Conan stories, I will put this soundtrack on <laughs> because I love it so much. And it just feels right. And it fits. And I, I don't know of any other fantasy film of this age, of this era, that really strikes me the same way this one does. This movie has informed what I feel good fantasy is, or at least what my preferred form of fantasy is. It's informed 
my Dungeons and Dragons. It's informed my fantasy, uh, not just in film, but in writing and reading. It has informed so much of the media that I consume and create that, I mean, this movie kind of transcends. There's a different word. Instead of transformative, it's a transcendence <laughs> that's happened for me regarding this movie. Um, I mean, I love the Howard stuff, don't get me wrong, but this movie kind of exists in a different space now for me. Oh, I understand. And one of the things that going back, I think because it's my personality type, is I'll, I'll research stuff in the past. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's what we do on Monster Kid Radio, right? As that's yeah. all we do. This is probably one of the more recent films that we've talked about here on the show. I, I don't think we've done anything. Let's see. Monster Squad was Monster 86. Squad. Yeah. So that's I think, more recent. I think Monster Squad is the most recent film we've done here on the show. And I could be wrong. So listeners, if I am wrong, please correct me. There is an episode guide potentially happening in the future. But yeah, I, I can't think of anything outside of the 80s that we've done. Anyway, yeah, that's what we do here. We look at the old stuff and we love it. Well, the reason I was bringing up Akiro, played by huh? Mako. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, was, this was the first time I was drawn to him. Like, you know, you see him. It's like, that voice, that face, the acting. And then, of course, he was in Conan the Destroyer in a totally different role, but a similar role. Yeah, and, I think we argued about that during our recording. I can't remember, but I think it's supposed like, to I think it's supposed to be the same guy, but who knows? Um well we'll leave that for listeners to hear later. Yeah, yeah. Because we can't talk about the future when we're in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Even though that recording took place in the past. Anyway. But it'll come out in the future. Ah. Well, time travel, it just hurts your head. Don't think about it too much. But then the big brawl. I see the big brawl and I'm like, there he is again. And then you and, and, and you know, because and then you start going back and looking at his older work and you're just amazed of the, the talent and ability that he had. And it's just wonderful, you know, and I know there's a younger generation that's all drawn to, drawn to him because of Avatar, The Last Airbender, you know, and, and those kind of things where he, it was pretty much his last roles until he died for being in that. And I don't know, do, are you familiar with Avatar, The Last Airbender? No. It's an awesome, awesome TV show, and he played Uncle Iroh, and he even sings in it, and he just it's just this great thing with his voice and that's how my children got to know Mako and then you know you throw Conan the Barbarian in there and some other stuff with you know, the big brawl and, and those kind of things it starts to hit you even more you know what, what he can do and he, he's done quite a lot and one of my favorite movies I ever saw of his was The Sand Pebble and I don't know if you were familiar with that one or not, but really good movie. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor and won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor. Right on. So there's a certain movie that anything he was in, he always brought that ability into it. You know, and that, that, I think one of the things with your show is, yes, we talk about the main stars a lot of times, but a lot of times we go all, I'll talk about these supporting guys who are all over the place. And, and I think that's what we're always drawn to. And, and also, 
I don't know if you ever want to see this movie, but Highlander 3, The Sorcerer, he's in that too. <laughs> I, had, I saw that in the theater, my friend. I saw that on the big screen. I can even, I don't know why, but I have very distinct sense memories of having seen that movie, what theater it was, what day of the week. It was on a Thursday. I, I don't know why, but I remember it was on a Thursday. It was in the afternoon. It was raining. I, I don't know why I have such strong memory of this, because it's not the best Highlander movie by far. But, yeah. <laughs> it's a movie. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> and I saw it in the theaters, too. So it, But, I mean, but, but Conan the Barbarian, that was that opened up the floodgates to things that I would see later, like the Beastmaster. Ah, uh, the, yes. The, the sword and the sorcerer. Um, mm -hmm. All these ones. They all have their positives and negatives and that kind of stuff. But for me, the biggest negative that I can think of Conan the Bulbarian, and I don't know if this is way with you, the person who was in charge of the wigs. <laughs> I mean, really, I'm like looking at these things like, oh my God, these are so obviously bad wigs. I mean, they got all these other good effects going on, but then you look at the wig, and, you, and of course you see them with the wigs on a lot of the time. I mean, you know, come on. James Earl Jones' wig is just, just oh my. <laughs> that was actually one of the first things Beth said when we were watching the movie. She had seen uh, the movie before, at least parts of it, and as we're watching it, and we get uh, not necessarily James Earl Jones' character, but uh, his two cronies. You know, his two uh, lieutenants, I guess their wigs in particular and she's like the wigs and like yeah 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 you get used to it <laughs> you, you couldn't help it to get used to it you had to it was it was there all the time and i was just like man uh, i don't know i don't know who they hired for the wigs but this was definitely not a showcase of their ability right <laughs> i'm just saying i'm just saying but the thing is, is you're not watching conan the barbarian for the wig no really. No, you are not. <laughs> oh man! What was, what was one of your What was one of your favorite scenes? Oh god! I'm not asking for your only your ultimate favorite. Just one of you know that way it opens up. For a movie like this that you would assume would be all about you know the sword fighting and the pecs and whatever, some of my favorite scenes are the smaller moments when he meets Subatai for the very first time. Food, give me food. I have not eaten in three days. And who says you will? And then they just kind of laugh and they're bonding and all that. And I love that sequence, that, that scene. Uh, and then another scene for me that really, that I find striking is when they're getting ready to go in and crash the orgy. When they're getting ready to go in and, and steal the princess back. The whole scene is great once they're in there and they're doing what they need to do. But as they're getting ready, as he is just slowly sharpening his sword and they're painting themselves with the war paint, with the white and black paint. That moment I get chills thinking about. What about you? Well, for me, if you're looking at the quieter moment, you mentioned two of the ones I like a lot also. Um, when he first meets the Kiro, going in and meets the Kiro and they're uh, talking about yeah. that that that's a great scene there and how they and how they they, they, they talk and it's it, it, it's not all fighting, but my favorite fight scene oh, yes. is the Battle of the Mounds. Yes, the Battle of the Mounds. Once the, okay, 
preparing for the Battle of the Mounds, awesome. But when the prayer to Krom happens, from that point on, I was riveted and probably barely drew breath because I was so into it. So good. So and good. I love it that the guy who carries the big hammer gets taken out by a bigger hammer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was another one of those moments. Like I said, people in the theater knew this was happening, knew this. Most everybody there had seen the movie before. So they knew that moment was going to happen, but it didn't matter. When that happened, when he spun around and used the hammer to hit the helmet that set off the trap that brought the spike around, people cheered like they were watching a soccer game. It was amazing. I got to give that actor credit because, yes, he was a bodybuilder. Yes, he's not a great actor. But there was one thing that John Milius got from him, which is in a different fight scene where they're fighting at the, the orgy. Where <laughs> yes. And, and he takes the hammer and he once hits this, this huge um, pillar and cracks it. And then when he hits it again and the pillar falls and he kind of does his finger, he looks at the hammer, looks at that. And it's kind of like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did that. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. <laughs> It's like, I don't know my own strength or whatever, you know, and those kind of things. And I, I, just that facial expression, you know, I was like, that that was probably the best acting he ever did in his life. And they got it on gold. They got it on film, but it fits so well. It's just like, woo. Uh, and I think the actor you're referring to is, uh, what is his name? Dwayne Ole Thorsen. I believe, yeah, that's that's who we're talking about. Sven Ole Thorsen, who became lifelong friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger on this and would double him in a number of other future projects down the line. So I think that's kind of cool too. to have that connection. I thought maybe they were friends prior in the bodybuilding world. And they probably they, they might the have been too, but yeah, from here, this was like the start of their film relationship anyway. Oh, definitely. But I mean, it was just, you know, and yeah, and the wig is terrible. I mean, you know, I, I agree with that, but like I already said, the wigs are just like, oh my God. Yeah. Bad, bad, bad wig. What was, what was your favorite fight scene? Battle of Mounds. I mean, it's fantastic because you've got you've got everything there, right? You've got, like I said, the prayer to Krom is amazing. You've got the the big bad fight with the uh, with the two lieutenants. You've got Valeria coming back as a Viking, basically, or as, as a Valkyrie. You've got the smaller moments with Subatai and the wizard. Uh, I did this, <laughs> you know, I, I, all that stuff there. And you get to see Subutai doing some really cool stuff. I think Subutai doesn't get talked about enough. His uh, He's just an amazing archer in this, and just the character is great. Uh, you get all of it. And it's, I just, love, it's so good. I love how when he runs out of arrow, yeah. he pulls his bow back, and the guys are up the road like, oh, we saw what he did to the other guys, and they fall over, and he's like, eh, I got no arrow. Yeah. <laughs> he runs off, <laughs> finds himself that time. And because that that that's what you would do. It's like you know, you take a fake out, like ah, and run runs off. And then of course, Akiro's when when after he stabs the guy that's about to kill Subara, you know, um, Gary Lopez's character, and he falls over and he's like a turtle stuck. Yes, on his back, and he can't get up until he gets the hand, you know, you know, and that kind of stuff. It was so funny. He's like, oh, and ah. it's a, and that was organic too. It wasn't like a forced kind of ha ha whatever. It was an organic moment that would have happened. I mean, that's that's for 
I don't know. Not that I have a lot of experience in this regard, but that felt real to me. Like that would happen, you know? So, oh, it was great. Oh, so good. And, oh man. James Earl Jones is the big bad. Right? That voice. I mean, like, do you think James Earl Jones had a future or a past playing people that are memorable as being the bad guys? <laughs> Telling I mean, only... the hero of the film that I made you. You are my child. I am your father, if not. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Geez, I wonder where that came from. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> yeah. Milius and Lucas were friends at one point. They were all kind of traveled in the same circle. So, uh, no, I, I don't think that's, yeah. But, yeah. But it fits, but, but, but you got Darth Vader's voice doing something stuff similar. But I will say, he, he had a horrible death. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because they show it's not easy. They cut off somebody's head. Speaking from experience, one. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> yeah, not one, not twice. It took three whacks with the broken sword to take off the head of of Falsa Doom and, and that kind of thing. Because it was just like, you know, he, he's at first one, he's gouged, he's still alive. He's just like, ah. And the second one, I think, did him in. And then the third one, we just finished off the chopping. Yeah. Which makes it so much more impressive when he did it to Conan's mom in the beginning. He did it in one swoop. Yeah. And he knew how to use his snakes. <laughs> Snake arrows. Those were, which is cool. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say who, but somebody that I was sitting next to thought, oh, was a little cheesy. But, you know, I I thought it was cool, man. I thought it was cool, and it fit the, it fit the um, the character. I mean, it fit the whole thing, the whole motif they were going for. Exactly, exactly. Now, if you're a snake lover, I can see where you'd be definitely upset about this. I was like, oh, what are you doing that to the poor snake? Well, and uh, yeah, I. This is something that Chris said afterwards. Uh, this was shot in Spain. This was shot away from the eyes of Hollywood. It was also the early 80s. We're betting that some of those animals probably didn't make it out of this unscathed. Just saying. Horses in particular. But anyway. It was a different time and a different place. And there's not much you can do about it now. I mean, it's just... Yeah. Um, you know, and what, what can you say? I mean, I know what you're talking about with like the one horse. And um, and that kind of stuff, but it's just what it is. It is what it is. So yeah, at this point, yeah, you can't. Yeah, you can't do anything about it now. So it was forty years ago when it was made, and in a different country. So it, it and things can things. Let's put it this way: I know Clint Eastwood talked about when he did his spaghetti westerns that um, he he warned Eli Wallach things like, "Yeah, don't let them tell you." your own son or whatever because they, they have a different um conception of safety yeah and that was a that was a human actor so you can imagine uh with animal actors you know it's like because he like well like i pictured it's where he almost got killed yeah by a train going by or whatever you know because they have so close and um they're all telling, oh yeah it'll be safe it'll be safe and then and then Clint Eastwood just wouldn't trust them yeah i learned Eli learned, luckily not the hard way, but he learned, yeah, um, um, don't don't have too much faith in this. 
Well, and people got hurt making this. I mean, people broke bones and, and got hurt making this. And yeah, it's different place, different time. Not saying that they were, you know, being uh, frivolous or, or not caring, but different place, different time, different standards. And on the one hand, you know, John Milius had a spiritual advisor on set and, you know, he's actually credited in the film, which I didn't realize either until seeing it this time around. Of course, John Milius has a spiritual advisor that ends up in the end credits of the film. Um, but I also get the impression he's kind of play fast and loose with what he wants to have on screen. And anyway, not to get too dark or maudlin. But otherwise, for listeners that have not seen Conan the Bulbarian, I'm leaving. If, if you want a snapshot into a big part of who I am as a person... <laughs> Which is really weird to say, because I know I'm known as, like, the monster kid guy, and, you know, yeah, I do gaming and fantasy and all that, but I'm a superhero guy, and, you know, there's the monster stuff and all that. This movie looms large for me. Uh, if if you were to make a pie chart of, of who I am, of my personality, uh, Conan the Barbarian and Robert E. Howard is a huge part of that. Um, huge part. And. But if you want to see it and haven't seen it, and you don't want to pay any money to see it, it is currently available on Tubi. Yes, you have ads that come up. Is it? Available on Tubi. That's great. Yeah. And the reason I noticed is because since I had no power, I was not able to watch my physical media. And I looked it up. And I was like, eh, it's on Tubi for free. And the commercials weren't too intrusive. You know, they, they came at pretty good spots, at least when I was watching it. Or it didn't bother me. But, I, but I've also seen the movie. A whole bunch of times. It wasn't. It was, it was just more of a refresh. But here, I thought it was ironic. I'm watching it on my iPad for this most recent discussion, and you watched it on the big screen. I thought that there, there was sheer irony. <laughs> I'm watching it probably on the small screen I've ever seen it, and you're watching it on the biggest screen the way it should be seen for this yeah. particular episode. <laughs> and I could still see Conan when a boy ice fishing, even on the small screen. That's why when you said that, I was just like. I How didn't realize that. <laughs> and, and maybe I was just caught up in the operatic nature of what was that. I don't know. I just didn't catch it. And this movie, with those moments kind of revealing themselves to me this way and seeing it this way and hearing the music, feeling the music, specifically feeling the music, because you're in a theater that likes to make sure they've got good sound, right? And you feel the music kind of wash over you and penetrate you it was just such a special experience this movie became more than a movie for me this time around this became say it you want to say it it will always be it was transformative yes uh it will always be a movie it will always be a story for me and it will always be you know a great representation of the howard story you know world and things like that and i get that it will always be that. I'll never take that away from it. But this movie, much like the Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man, or the original Dawn of the Dead, uh, or a few other movies, have become more than just a movie for me now. Watching it this way, it became, I don't know, a treatise on somebody's philosophy that maybe I don't necessarily 100% agree with, but I completely understand now. Um, it just, it's, it's more than just a story to me now. And I am forever grateful I had the opportunity to see it the way that I did. And I have to say, it goes back to the, the writer and director, John Milius, 
and with co-director and co-writer, I'm sorry, Oliver Stone, able to pick up on what Robert E. Howard was overall trying to get across sure. some of his work sure. and, and, and feed it into the movie. So, yes, it, it, you know, which we discussed before. And uh, I think it's definitely one I recommend. I saw when I was, like I said, 13 years old. Uh, still holds up to me today. Cause, you know, not every movie you see when you're like that age holds up 40 years later and you're looking at it and you're like, eh, I can see what I liked back then, but it doesn't really have the, the roots to hold up nowadays. It holds up it's, it's for me. And, and, and I think for you too, for decades and decades of, of, of watching it afterwards. And it's, it's one of those films that I'm always going to cherish and enjoy. And it's, like I said, it was my gateway into a lot of different actors and, and work. And uh, I think people should see this movie if they yeah. haven't seen it. And I think there are people that haven't seen it, though. I mean, you know, go out there and do your Conan. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't, don't. And one day, maybe on my podcast, we'll talk about Conan with um, Momoa and um, Ron Perlman playing the father. We can. Um, like Scalibur will come first. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. You're starting to lose me there, buddy. Okay, but Excalibur will bring me back. Uh, and I don't know I, if he ever hears this. Mr. Bill Roberts, now retired creative writing and English teacher from Central High School in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Shout out to the man who really opened my eyes to Excalibur, uh, as well as so much of Robert E. Howard. Uh, he he kind of opened the door to Robert E. Howard for me that I just <laughs> tripped and stumbled through um, in a way that, you know, I'm, I'm much better off for. And uh, huge shout out and thanks to, to the man who uh, brought so much into my life this way. Here, here. So, Steve. Um, wow. <laughs> if you want to hear Steve talk about another movie that also includes Sandal Bergman, you can hear him on a recent episode of the B-Movie cast where they talk about Xanadu. <laughs> Open your eyes and hear the magic. Universal Pictures announces the most dazzling romantic musical fantasy in years. Xanadu. Episode 499. So go look up B-Movie Cast where you can buy... <laughs> Wherever the best I, podcasts are sold or distributed or whatever, I don't know. <laughs> but do you have any questions for me, Derek? No, we're good. No classic five. I know, I know, no, I'm just teasing. Just teasing. <laughs> the classic, classic five. Uh, no, we'll play, of course, we'll play a round of the classic five. The classic five is a game that we play on every episode of Monster Kid Radio, usually in which I have a literal deck of cards. Each one of these cards has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question on them? There are no wrong or right answers. It's just a way to get our friends talking about our favorite topic, monster movies. Steve, do you want to play a round of the classic five? I'll do that for you, Derek. Oh, all right. Question number one, card number one. What character from a classic monster movie would you like to have a drink or a meal with? What character would I like to have a drink or meal with from a classic monster movie? And everybody always gets mixed up with the actors, and they'll say, like, Vincent Price and that kind of stuff, mixing the actor up with the role. I'm going to try to stay with the role specifically. And 
I'm, I'm going to use some inspiration here of being at Monster Bash recently and being that um, Caroline Monroe was there and the Golden Voyage of Sinbad was her movie. So, yes, I would love to have a drink or a dinner with Caroline Monroe's character from the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Very cool. Okay. I like it. Wouldn't you? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think I'd... Uh, oh, man, I don't know. It's a character, a character from Captain Kronos is the one I'd probably go for if I was going Carolyn Monroe, but that's just me. Uh, well, I, I can go with that one, too, but it's just... Um, I, I'd be worried that that one might kill me at the end, you know? <laughs> you gotta have a little bit of... Do you want to live forever? I mean, come on. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Card number two, what prop from a classic monster movie would you like to own for yourself? Oh, you've asked me this question before, so I'm going to try to come up with a different answer. Have I asked you? Do you want, you want me to do a different one? No, 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 no. Okay. There's tons of props out there. Anyway, you know, why limit yourself to one prop when you can have multiple props? Um, <laughs> you say to the guy who's trying to sell so much of his stuff right now. <laughs> you're trying to sell the stuff that you haven't displayed and have been in boxes since before you move and after you move. So you know it's time for it to move. To find on. a new home. Find somebody else yeah. to enjoy it. Yep. Yeah. And that, that's the key thing. You know, so it's, if it's being displayed, you're not getting rid of the stuff you're displaying or you're proper or you're utilizing. You're getting rid of stuff that you're finding out that it's been in a box. I haven't looked at it for years. And you have to knock the dust off the box if you get to it. So you know it's time for it to move. If to it still home. gives me joy, I'll keep it. <laughs> okay. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You can go with that. Um, let's see. I'm going to go with the um, the glaze from wow. Crawl. Wow, A R U L L. I would love to have that thing, dude. I love Crawl. <laughs> oh man, because because it ties in with Conan. I mean, come on, you know we're talking the oh, same yeah. time frame, and and the glaze. I mean, you and I have to talk about that movie one day. Oh, that that movie uh, that oh. Oh, I mean, Liam Neeson. Come on, man. I mean, it's I, I feel like you and movies. I could have a. I feel like you and I could have a really nice run of just fantasy sword and sorcery movies on of the Diecast Movie Podcast. You know, if we ever wanted, because Kroll, this movie, Beastmaster, I freaking love. You know, just so yeah. Well, Beastmaster, we did already with Rich Chamberlain. Ah, so one. what? Do it again. Well, we can always do this. We can always do the sequel. No, we don't. We don't. You know, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, there's always the sword and the sorcerer. There you go. There you go. With the with the three bladed sword. There you go. There you and go. Peter Breck and, and Peter Beck is in it. So I mean, yep. come on. Yeah. Hawk the Slayer. You can do Hawk the Slayer. There you go. Yeah. With uh, Jack Palance. That's a villain, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. There, 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 there's, there's tons of there's oh my lord there's tons of those great eighties fantasy movies come on oh gosh now and that's not wanna... even going that's that's not even going into the Italian stuff I mean then you could start getting into some really wild stuff <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah the glaive good call <laughs> thank you thank you uh, man I had the cruel board game I played the cruel board game with my friends all the time I love that oh I love that oh man so good. Freddie Jones, dude. Okay, anyway. Card number three. <laughs> Card number three. What is your favorite non-Toho kaiju creature? Gamera. That was a very fast response. 
as well it should be. <laughs> wow. All right. For, for anybody that follows Gamera, Godzilla, all that stuff, I mean, you know, when you take away all the Toho, I mean, really, Gamera is the next, the next man up or next creature up. I cannot wait. You know, I know it's not Gamera. That's non-Toho. I can't wait for Shin Ultraman to make its way over here. I mean, oh. I, I could have picked King Kong. I could have picked the giant claw. I want Gamera. Get over yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. All right, card number four. Favorite mummy movie? I can tell you which one's not my favorite now. Tom Cruise? <laughs> no, no, no. The Mummy's Tomb, and there's a reason for this. Um, it has nothing at all to do with the movie itself. It has me to do with a game show at the Monster Bash in October. Oh, what where happened? You, where, where they're doing the match game, and you have to match the answer with the person. And it was the Mummy's blank. And I said, hand, and they said, tomb. So, and I should have said, and, and I was going back and forth in my mind. I was thinking tomb or hand, tomb or hand. But you're trying to, like, read the other person's mind. Right. What would they pick? And, um, and if they tried to read my mind, they'd go to total tra- craziness because it's just sheer confusion in my mind normally. And uh, so because I didn't pick tomb, I got I to gotta say, you know, the, the monster's tomb now, the mummy's tomb now holds is a little bit low because just because of that personal experience. It has nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> Fair enough. But my favorite one, to be in all honesty, is the hammer, the mummy. The mummy. Fear will freeze you when you face it. The mummy. Torn from the darkest tomb of the pharaohs, it rises from the quiet dust of centuries to wreak a strange vengeance against mankind. The mummy. It tears steel bars like paper. It snaps men's spines like matchsticks. It walks through bullets like a ghost. It sees without eyes, it lives without breath, yet its desires are strangely, madly human. The motion picture screen's most shocking experience in suspense. In chilling Technicolor, The Mummy. The reason is, is I love the version of The Mummy in it, because it's in it throughout the movie. The physicality, the toughness of it. Um, where, where the universal one, Boris Karloff, is awesome. But he's, and The Mummy effect is, is probably the best of it but it's only he's, he's only mummified for a small portion of the movie under the wraps i mean and then the rest of the time he's not and it's it, it, so to me i'm looking at it in two different ways and i also think that the hammer version is more of a horror film and the the universal version more of an adventure film, and not as horrific and, and that's my personal preference in that kind of stuff and to hear more about me with the mummy from Hammer, Alistair and I have a future episode of Hammerama coming out on that. Excellent. That's great. Uh, the Hammer's fan, you know, the Hammer mummy film is fantastic. So, not going to argue there. All right, final question Colin Clive or Peter Cushing? That's really an unfair question. <laughs> I know but we I just mean, got done talking about the mummy, which, you know, the Peter Cushing film, but. Well, no, I'm just saying is because Peter Cushing had a, a longer career and it took so much more work than Colin Clive because of alcoholism and things like that. Well, and especially um, in the genre, especially in the genre, for sure. It, in the genre. It, and they're both great actors. And I mean, I, I saw Colin Clive in The Journey's End. Um, 
James Whale's first film, we did our James Whale retrospective. And to, and to see him there is to really see some great acting that was going on. And it puts Colin Clive in a different light. But, I mean, it, it's, it's an unfair contest to put him up against Peter Cushing. I mean, it's just, it's, what, what did Colin Clive do to you to write that kind of question there? Because really, <laughs> that's, that's... You know, some people prefer the universal to the hammer and... You know, Colin Clive is is good, and I've I've gotten more respect for him over the years. But you know, it's Peter Cushing, man. I know it's Peter Cushing. That's like saying, "Oh, which podcaster do you prefer, Derek M. Cook or Stephen Turner?" Oh, I mean, come it's like, on! You're the Peter Cushing, and I'm the Colin Clive that doesn't drink. You know, I mean, it's, come like on. You're talking about two <laughs> different ballparks, two different things. Oh, Mister Hall of Famer. Oh, though, no, come on, come on. I'm in the Hall of Fame. Come on. <laughs> Fine. I, I dust my rondos off every day. Oh, you know, I do, I do need to do that. I spent a little while. So anyway, um, <laughs> one, I've run a, one's run award. The other guy, hey, eh, gets a token nomination. But I mean, no, but really, I mean, you know, it's the body of work and you know, your body of work is voluminous because you, you talk mail order zombies, you know, the, the monster kid radio, uh, it's, it, it, I'm just using it. I'm being honest. It's a fair comparison. It's like it's like trying to compare, you know, somebody that's had a long grip of work to somebody that's had a very narrow years where they're at their A game. And Count Clive was loved by a lot of like Catherine Hedburn wanted to work with him. A lot of great actresses wanted to work with Colin Clive because he was so talented. It's not a knock against him. It's just one has a decades upon decades upon decades. Of, of work to look at. I mean, and, and, and you're talking about the Hammer movies. I'm, 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 not, I'm not breaking this into the horror thing. I'm looking at their overall body of work. I mean, how many people do you know that were in Hammer movies and Star Wars movies or movies? Well, technically two if you count the, the computer-generated one. Um, so technically, Peter Cushing's still working, so to speak. Uh, but I mean, you just, you just look at his stuff. I mean, I've also in the James Earl retrospective, I saw Peter Cushing in the man in the iron mask. That's true. So you're talking what the thirties all the way up to, um, you know, like the late, early 1940s. Can't remember when man in the iron mask, 1938, late thirties, all the way up to the late seventies, early eighties, you know, still churning out great work. I mean, Peter Cushing. I mean, it's, does anybody ever pick Common Clive? I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. I I don't know if I can remember anybody ever picking Colin Clive over Peter Cushing. At, at my point exactly. You with your you with your five thousand listeners every episode, and mine with my twenty four loyal listeners. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being fair and honest. I mean, you might look at it as like, you know, but it's just the way it is. I know, I know 5,000 was too little, but I mean, you know, I, I can't help it. I don't know what your numbers are. I'm sure they're outrageous. Oh, boy. Next thing you're going to ask me, what movie do you like better, Star Wars or Star Crash? Well, fortunately, that was the fifth question, so we're done. Like, <laughs> you put the monster, uh, the, the Classic 5 deck away here at this point. We can go ahead and wrap up. You've mentioned it a few times. Hammerama is part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. 
uh, Empire at this point, uh, part of the same feed. Where can people find it? Oh, well, you can find it anywhere uh, Anywhere our feed is. Just type in Diecast Movie Podcast, and it'll take you right to it. But we're on Anchor.fm. Um, I think it's Anchor.fm slash Diecast Movie Podcast, and it'll take you to it. But if you do a general web search, we'll pop right up with Diecast Movie Podcast. Also, you can follow us on Facebook at the same thing. And, um, and if you follow us there, you know when the new episodes will come out because that's pretty much all I put out there is when the episodes are coming out. Uh, you know, and you'll know what, you know, we do so many different things. We have the episodes, the interviews, half of them are movie discussions. The reason it's called Diecast, for those that don't know, is you roll a die typically to decide which genre of movie that we're going to pick from. And Derek was on there and he rolled, um, I forgot the genre. I think it was, was it independent or action. So, I think it was action. It was action. And Derek picked out that classic Black Samurai. Yes! Black Samurai is awesome. Jim Kelly, Agent Ford Dragon, codename Black Samurai. On land, on sea, in the air. In action, Jim Kelly is the Black Samurai, the incredible secret agent for Dragon. It's a wild episode. It's a wild movie. Heck yeah. I look at it as having a little bit of everything. We have a, a James Earl retrospective, which is just about done. Um, and then we're going to start a Sam Peckinpah retrospective up. Nice. And I got interviews coming out soon that I recorded with Mimi Gibson from The Monster to Challenge the World. Um, I'm going to be interviewing Caroline Monroe soon. Um, we, we just said we, we, we're going to set it up. You know, she's just recovering from coming back from the bash. As soon as she, you know, back to her normal self, we're going to be doing that. That'll be coming out. So, um, yeah, for people who don't know Caroline and, and a handful of people, and unfortunately I've not heard of anything getting worse. I've heard most people who have reported having caught COVID at Monster Bash have all recovered at this point, which is great, uh, great news. So. Yeah, a couple, uh, a few people did get it, and um, I did not. Um, uh, so it's just, and, and and all the people that I know of have recovered. There's there's some other people that, that you probably don't know about, but I know from there's emails that got it. You know, I'm not going to totally disclose, but they're all fine now. Everybody, yeah, everybody yeah, no, these, these are just people that have talked about it on Facebook that I know of. I wasn't gonna, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Caroline disclosed hers publicly, so that one exactly, exactly. Uh, so yeah, Derek, thank you, thank you yeah. for letting me come on the show to talk about Conan the Barbarian for the second time. You know what that right? makes? I got to watch it again, which is never a bad thing. But it's such a classic movie. Heck yeah, so good. Oh man, I I want to I want to go I want to go watch it again. But the I don't know if you watch it, you might have a transformative experience. Yeah, today's word is transformative. Come aboard the Sea View, the fantastic submarine of the future, exploring the uncharted ocean floor. Join the men of the Sea View as they encounter supernatural beings, mysterious islands. This whole island's a volcano. If it goes, we go too. (laughs) 
and strange phenomena that affect even the crew. I've received my orders. Destroy the sea view, and I'm going to carry them out. Stay where you are. from that cloud. Come aboard the Sea View for a voyage to the bottom of the sea. A voyage into the unknown. In color on ABC. Prepare to enter a timeless land beyond the stars where the strange collides with the incredible as you become lost in space. share the brand of danger known only to those who explore the dark corners of the universe when you join the Robinson Party and that mischievous space hitchhiker Dr. Zachary Smith. You'll encounter monsters, diabolical dwarfs, interplanetary transportation in the blink of an eye, Lost in Space, in color, Wednesday night, 7.30, 6.30 Central Time, on the CBS Television... Huge thanks to everybody who helped to make this show awesome. I appreciate you, and thank you for listening to Monster Kid Radio and getting to this part all the way at the end of the podcast. Of course, if you want to know anything about the podcast, what we're up to, where you can connect with us, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about the podcast between episodes. you got links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Patreon, our Discord, and our Reddit. It's all right over there, as well as links to everything else we've talked about in this episode. You want to follow up with Mark or Steve, or you want to buy Conan the Barbarian on Blu-ray for yourself, please follow those links over at monsterkidradio.net. And speaking of the Amazon affiliate links, if you're interested in reading some Conan stories, the original text, I made sure that there are links over at our show notes, again, at monsterkidradio.net, where you can click on and go directly to where you can pick up the books from Amazon. Please consider using that link. Please consider using the links to Amazon anytime you shop on Amazon, because since we're an Amazon affiliate, we get a couple of pennies per dollar or whatever, and it helps us out, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So please consider supporting the show that way. Of course, you can support the show through Patreon or just spreading the word about Monster Kid Radio on Facebook, on Twitter, and everywhere else. Thank you to those of you who already do that. I appreciate you so much. This weekend at Monster Kid Radio's Monster Kid Movie Club on Twitch, it's A to Z. Lionel Atwill to George Zuko. We're showing Lionel Atwill and George Zuko movies sponsored by Go Forth and Game. Join us over at Twitch, twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. Please consider following and, of course, subscribing. You'll be notified every time we go live over there. I've been trying to do some more live appearances. Movies start around noon. The pre-show's at 11 a.m. Movies at noon. And then around 4-ish, I've been trying to get on live for a little while to hang out. May do that a little earlier on Saturday. We'll see. Best way for you to find out, though, is just to follow us over on Twitch. Twitch.tv slash MonsterKidRadio. On Tuesday, we do movies as well i'm not sure what we're doing next tuesday again follow and you'll be notified what's coming up next week on the show well i hope you enjoy listening to mark matsky's beta capsule review because next week you're getting a whole episode of mark matsky mark recently attended g fest 
which is a convention that I've never been to. I've always had to, and I think I say this a lot in the recording, live vicariously through people like Mark and Andy, his son, or the Kaiju cast, or the other podcasters who attend G-Fest. Never been, always been interested, always wanted to go, and Mark, well, doesn't make my life any easier because after I got done talking with him, I really, really want to go to G-Fest. Maybe in the future. We'll see. In the meantime, I've got Mark telling us all about it and just how exciting it was. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to spoil the episode. It's it's a good one. And I love chatting with Mark. He's a good dude. So I'm happy to have him on the show next week. And I'll go ahead and tell you, the following week, <laughs> we're talking about Octoman with Christopher Page from Orphaned Entertainment and the Time Shifters podcast. So we've got G-Fest next week. In two weeks, Octoman. What more do you need reason-wise to subscribe to the show? I mean, come on. Come on. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I appreciate everybody participating by sending in feedback. We can receive feedback here on the show. I actually have some emails. Excuse me. I have some voicemails from Captain Billy, which we're going to play next week on the show. If you want to participate and be part of that feedback discussion, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 360 360- Five two four two four eight four. This is also available on our website. Until next week, remember, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 Unported License. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Wipeout Country. That is copyright 2020. The Void Surfers. You can check it out on their new album. That came out earlier this year, Satanic Cowboy Surf Rock Mayhem, over at thevoidsurfers.bandcamp.com. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Bye, Crom. (laughs) 